Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and friends. And we are starting 2024 off with a continued conversation with the Reverend Dr. Angie McCarty. And we are going to dive into a really deep topic today called embodiment theology. But before we do that, I just have to ask Angie, how was the celebration of Jesus's birth? How was Christmas for you? Sweet little baby Jesus is born. It's good. You know, it's always a little bit crazy as a pastor that this is the busiest time of the year. So it's not just like buying gifts and going to parties and all that stuff that everybody experiences or most people experience. It's also planning multiple worship services and making sure all the details for those are done. And Church of the Resurrection had like, like 30 something worship services. And I participated in three of those. And then Christmas Eve at my church, it was all wonderful and especially wonderful because this is the second year in a row that I have not experienced deep, deep depression at this time of year. Wow. And yeah. Yeah. Christmas has been sad for me my entire adult life. And last year it wasn't kind of freaked me out that, that I couldn't like pinpoint what it was that kept me from getting depressed last year. So I thought, gosh, if I don't know what it is, then I can't repeat it, <laughs> but it, it just was. So we were happy. We did our celebration with the kids on the 28th because they were all with their other parents for Christmas, um, which allowed us to have a pretty quiet Christmas at the chiefs game. We went to the Chiefs game. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that was real quiet with Taylor yeah. Swift there and all that. I'm yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah, she says hi, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course she does. <laughs> it was great. It was all good. How about you? Uh, I heard an expression yesterday that Taylor Swift has done for the Kansas City Chiefs what Barbie has done for, I don't even remember what the analogy was, but it, it <laughs> Uh, Barbie has done for the movies maybe uh, anyway maybe yeah yeah I the only reason that I know what's happening with the Kansas City Chiefs is because I hear it through Taylor Swift <laughs> yes yeah so now you know we're going to the playoffs uh, well didn't we win the Super Bowl last year mm-hmm. so there you go yeah, but we're not so great we're not as impressive this year as dominant um but won the AFC championship for the eighth year in a row Listen to me like I know what I'm talking about. I was going to say, maybe Kelsey's just a little too distracted with Taylor up in the stands to really. Well, there was some, there was a sports writer who said, can we just say that, that Taylor is a distraction to the chiefs and the responses that he got about misogynistic, his misogynistic thoughts and sexism, like that entire team lost the game on Christmas day. And now you're blaming it on the woman. Right. a woman oh, who's isn't watching. that a biblical principle? Blame it on the woman. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That reminds me of my days of being a Dallas Cowboy fan and Tony Romo was dating like Jessica Simpson or somebody like that. And yeah. And yeah. The, oh, he's just too distracted. Make her stay away. Yeah. And, and like, have you seen Tom Brady's wife? Nobody ever said that she was a distraction, but she's gorgeous. How is she yeah. not a distraction to every person she's ever around? Right. I hate that the worst. <laughs> Anyway, I'm glad that you have had two Christmases in a row uh-huh. without depression. That is wonderful. It It is the time of year. I think that the uh-huh. fact that we have Christmas and New Year's in the dead of winter 
or just as winter is starting, but still, yeah, it's just a recipe for depression of just the cold and the, mm-hmm. and the stress of the holidays and family is messy when you get them all together. Mm-hmm. That's always an interesting thing. We, uh, we had a really good holiday. I too got through without feeling major anxiety and depression, but I think that it was because I've never felt so supported. You know, we moved my mom up from Texas to live with, mm-hmm. with or near us, not with us, but near us in Springfield, Missouri. And my son came for uh, a total of three and a half weeks. And then my niece was here for two weeks in the middle of that. And so I just had a lot of help and that yeah. was really glorious. And we didn't have to travel for the holidays. Everybody came to us. So that was, that was lovely. That's amazing. Um, but speaking of holidays, uh, today is a significant day and I feel like I would be remiss not to mention it just, um, mostly for the benefit of those listening, January 2nd, um, it goes down in history. It, it, it was the day that my dad committed suicide seven years ago. And I'm not, that's not the end of the story. Two years later in 2019, Charlie and I had just married in October but we decided to do a small wedding and a really big honeymoon. And so we had to take it when he was between semesters. We were looking for the day that we could use frequent flyer miles to fly to Tahiti and Bora Bora. And like I said, if we believe in big honeymoons. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, well, it looks as if the only day that we can fly there using frequent flyer miles is January 2nd. And I just said, well, Charlie, I can't. I can't fly off to Tahiti on my honeymoon on January 2nd, because that's the anniversary date of my dad's suicide. And he said, Shannon, now he's, you know, Charlie's a grief therapist. Mm-hmm. Shannon, do you think that your dad intended to rob you of every January 2nd, the rest of your life? And he said, I think that you should ask your mom and see what she thinks about the idea of you flying off to Tahiti on January 2nd. And so when I ran it by her, she said, oh God, would somebody do something in this family that we can celebrate on January 2nd? So so today is not just that anniversary. It's the anniversary of my honeymoon uh, excursion. So (laughs) the, the lesson that we derived from that conversation is that joy and grief can coexist. It's not all one or all the other. We don't have to stop anything joyful in order to grieve. And chances are, there's no way that that's even possible, even if we tried. Um, And no amount of grief is so deep that we can't find reasons and causes for some joy and celebration. Yeah. Kind of leads us into our topic today with this embodiment theology and uh, the conversation following this one is going to be forgiving those who let us down that purity movement path. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about mixing grief and joy together. When we, t- I'm sure that you've had the same experience. When we talk to individuals who drank the purity movement Kool-Aid that we ourselves admit to having served out of ignorance 30 years ago, over 30 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Talk about grief and joy coexisting, having to coexist when it comes to their sexuality. And so uh, you were the expert on embodiment theology. This was part of your presentation work. So it, it was a part of my work. And I always want to shroud my work in not being an expert. I mean, I am still learning about this 
alongside everybody. So I have researched it and I wrote some in my paper about embodiment theology. But let's let's go back to like the Greeks and their leadership and Hellenistic influence on our culture and dualism. The idea that we have to choose one or the other, that, that we have to choose grief or joy. We have to choose black or white. And what we have learned, I think, primarily through experience over thousands of years um, or 50 years in my lifetime, is that that life is never either or. It is always both and. That life exists on this continuum and we, we move. We are fluid beings in our thought processes, our theology, our um, our sexuality, and, and I'm not talking about heterosexuality, homosexuality, that continuum, but just um, how we embrace it and how we think about our own sexuality. So how this translates is- I was gonna say, because, it's not just a black and white issue. You're saying there really are 50 shades of gray and maybe even lots more than 50. 485, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good number today. <laughs> yeah. So right after Jesus' time, when the the leaders, the patristic fathers were trying to figure out like how to take this Jesus experience into something that made sense, a, a language, a way to talk about it. There was a heresy called Gnosticism. And one of the things that the Gnostics promoted was the idea that Jesus didn't really have a body because the body is, is evil and the spirit is what is pure. Mm. So the body is, I mean, everything about the body is evil. And, and I'm curious, let me ask a quick question just for my own sake of, of tracking mm -hmm. history as best as I can. Was this before or after, was it Martin Luther that had the big theology of the body is bad. Everything about the body is worldly. He, he had some struggles. This was long before that. Okay. That's what I was yeah. wondering. So this goes back way before. Uh, yeah. Like first, second century. Body anxieties. Okay. Yeah. So the Gnostics were, were written off as heretical. Um, and that, I think that thinking our bodies are evil and our spirits are pure and perfect has crept into our vision of sexuality today. I could maybe write a book called The New Gnosticism about this. Oh. So we are forced. Yeah, I'm going to get that word. Neo-Gnosticism? No, no, no. The New Gnosticism. Oh, I, I yeah. know, but, but yeah. I'm oh, oh, but two together, kind of like neo-Gnosticism. Neo yeah. Oh, I don't want to go there. Neo-Nazi, that's gross. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So let's be clear. I'm not into that. <laughs> oh, Lord. I'm um, just saying that I think that you're right. Uh -huh. But to hear a label for it is kind of eye-opening. It's yeah. like a lifting. Yeah. Yeah. After 2,000 years, this is still a thing. Because what we promoted in the purity movement is that your body can't be trusted. Your body is what leads you to the evil acts of sex. It's your hormones, which are physical components, a part of the body 
that lead you to be completely out of control, um, you know, giving yourself away, you give away your body, um, your body becomes that crumpled flower. Your body carries the germs that will give you chlamydia and cause you to die. Um, all of that was focused on the body. Now, you and I did focus some on the emotional ramifications of premarital sex was how we framed it. And so that is not necessarily physical, but by and large, the, the messages that we sent were the body is bad mm. and, and, and can't be trusted. And you need to Whoa. keep it pristine like a... Pure. Yeah, like a um, like an original Barbie that has to be kept in the box, or an original mm -hmm. T.I. Joe that has to be kept in the cellophane wrapper. Of yeah, yeah. You can't let it be touched or tarnished. And or if you do, goods, yes, yeah, your body is damaged. For women, your hymen is not intact anymore. Mm. For men, there's no physical sign. Uh, that they are impure. And so maybe that's why we focus so much on women keeping their, their virginity because they're, for some women, there is a, a physical sign of, of that. Wasn't it that true that there was a particular era? I don't remember if it would have been before the biblical era or during or after, but if there was not blood on the sheets when they consummated their marriage, then- Wait. You could be stoned. Yes. So if you watch with the blood on it to to mm -hmm. announce to the community that she was indeed a virgin, like that is just so yeah. shockingly offensive to me. And <laughs> there are some TV shows which you know are true, like Outlander, I think is one, and um, there's another one about the Russian, sorry, Catherine, Catherine, whatever in Russia. That in both of those marriage scenes, the bed is kind of covered with fabric but there are people right outside like in the room so that they can check the blood and make sure that it's there now that is disgusting and i hope that that was just for hollywood the marriage was considered illegitimate if she mm -hmm. didn't bleed correct yeah yep. take it this is before the invention of tampons and before the invention of cars so riding a horse could do the same thing right so mm -hmm. a lot of which is why women rode side saddle a lot. Ah, that's why. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it it's absolutely <laughs> shocking at how far we've come in society, but yet certain things have lingered. They have held on. Uh-huh. Continue. The result, the resulting emotion of that the body is bad message from the purity movement is shame and shame is different than guilt. Guilt is feeling bad over something we have done. Shame is feeling bad about who we are in our essence. Embodiment theology, which primarily came out in like the 1970s, I think from a guy named James Nelson, uh, not to be confused with the publishing house, Nelson publishing. Um, he wrote a book called embodied. Um, which is where I got most of my information, but I read a great article on Sojourners just the other day about it. So it's still something that's being spoken of. And maybe the best way to think about embodiment theology is to think about what it's not 
So we've already talked about that. It, it counteracts the idea that the body is bad. It bases the theology on the incarnation. So let's think about this. God chose to become flesh, to take on flesh. God did not choose to take on something that was evil. And by virtue of God taking on flesh, it elevates the flesh. It elevates our bodies. Um, I I heard right here, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Like, right, like, right, like, and Merry Christmas. The whole idea that Jesus didn't have a body going back to the Gnostics. Yeah. Like if there wasn't a body, then there weren't miracles performed. Then there wasn't a crucifixion. Then there wasn't a resurrection. Like what would we have faith in? It really unravels quickly. Yeah. So we know (laughs) he had a body. There is historical evidence to support a body, in fact, I've seen uh, the Shroud of Turin uh-huh. fragments, and also when we were in Bruges, Belgium this last fall, they have what they believe, based on the DNA research that they've done on it, they believe that they have um, a sample of the blood of Jesus taken from the Shroud of Turin, which, w- and you, so you can pass by, you know, like the line is forever long, but you pass by and look at it, and the priest, you know, does a little blessing over you but i was looking at that blood thinking of all the elements of all the matter in existence in our entire world my whole paradigm is based on what's in that vial that the yes. blood for us is sufficient for us to have eternal life with god yeah. and so if it didn't if he didn't have a body he didn't have blood like okay so i'm, I'm beyond yeah. gnostics ridiculous yeah now (laughs) so coming back to we know jesus had a body we know jesus had a body and and good yes good and necessary like what could we do without bodies like if that is the most ridiculous question a ridiculous thought so embodiment theology seeks to elevate the body to its given position as created by god to be very good to um to recognize that it is the only thing that allows us to be and do god's work in the world and as through which mm -hmm, his power flows is as that turns toward the sexual realm it celebrates our sexuality it celebrates the act of sex two bodies coming together in communion and takes sex from an act between two people to include God in it too, Mm. as our bodies are a gift from God. Now, if there is like an expert of embodiment theology listening to this, they're probably going to say, wait, that's not all right. I'm, I'm not saying everything and I'm not quoting James Nelson. This is my interpretation of it. And so in my, in my work, um, I talked in our last episode about the five themes that came out of my research. And one of those was that sex is always linked with shame. The alternative, I believe, to counteract that shame is embracing embodiment theology to recognize that the antivenom. Yeah. There is no 
there is no shame in our bodies and what our bodies do. Right. Now, let's move to, yes, but there are boundaries. Always there are boundaries to every relationship, Especially including acceptable. relationships Yes. Yeah. To keep us healthy. Mm-hmm. And health with sexuality does not only deal with the body. So we do have emotions that play in, but for the sake of embodiment theology, um, those boundaries with our bodies, how do we figure out what those are? Mm. We look to scripture, of course, and the the scripture that we loved so much in the purity movement was your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes, that is what embodiment theology says, that that this is where God lives. This is how God works in the world, is through your body. To make the leap from, from your body is a spirit, or your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, to don't have sex before marriage, it, it, it might mean that. It might. For some people, it might mean that honoring your body and recognizing that it is a temple of the Holy Spirit means that you're okay, not just okay, that that God is okay with you giving your body fully to somebody with whom you were in covenant relationship. It. I'm just not okay to feel sexual energy in your body without doing something wrong. This is, this is the wall that women hit is they can't relax the guardrails in their mind to just let whatever thought they need to entertain cause them to trigger that pituitary gland to send the blood flow to their genitals, to create interest and arousal. I think that so many women are going through just dutiful um, submission sex, uh, mercy sex, but their bodies and their minds are not in it because of this very notion of I can't let sexual thoughts go through my head because that would be a sin because I'm supposed to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. But my challenge is that passage didn't say don't ever have a thought. It's just that you take the thoughts and make them obedient, which channeling that sexual energy that you've just created with those thoughts and fantasies into your marriage bed. How is that not taking it captive and making it obedient to Christ? But this whole thing of not even a hint of immorality, not even a thought that goes back to that misinterpretation of Matthew 5, 27, of if you even look upon fully, right, which uh, I, I, I kind of feel as if we might need to, have we unpacked that together? We haven't. Okay. No. Probably need to insert that into this conversation. So I'm going to make a note here about Matthew mm-hmm. 5, because that is, that is, I think the biggest stumbling block, the most misinterpreted passage in all of scripture. But another scripture that comes to my mind is it in Genesis 2, we are told that God created man and he created all the animals and then he created woman. And we don't know for sure that it all happened in that order, but that's how the story goes. But he declared that they were to be uh, fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, 
he declared those bodies and what those bodies were wired to want to do with one another. He declared all of that as not just good, like the animals, but as very good. And this and was created, cool. created male and female for each other. Yes. And this was all before the fall of man entered the picture. Satan had nothing to do with this. It wasn't that God crafted the eyeballs and the earlobes and the elbows, but Satan decided to slap on the genitals at the last minute. Like, no, our genitals are sacred. Our penises, our vaginas, or if you have something in between, like I realize that there are some people who don't really strongly fit one category or the other because of the biology of how they were born. It they had is not a choice in the matter. It's just they kind of have a combination of the two. Uh, and Shannon, let let me ask you: Why did God create the clitoris? For what purpose? Pleasure. <laughs> any other purpose none oh there's no purpose. he didn't have to right yeah he mm -hmm. did not did not have to create the clitoris but i mean from a biological standpoint it's actually that both males and females start out with a clitoris and if there's a certain chromosome that clitoris will sprout and become a penis so it had to start somewhere it started with the clitoris um, but this whole, even just the conversation around gender can make some Christians and even some non-Christians so uptight and anxious, but here's what I often challenge people to consider. One of the most common terms used for God in the Jewish tradition was El Shaddai. You remember the Amy Grant song? El Shaddai. El Shaddai. Yeah. Do you know what that word means? Tell us. Many-breasted one. In other words, God is not just male. He is also female. He is a nurturer. He nourishes our souls. And there is enough nourishment to go around to everyone. Many-breasted one. I really love that imagery. So I, I want to come back to uh, Matthew 5, 27. But then... I'm going to pose to you one of the stickiest questions you could possibly fathom. Okay. okay. So and then I have, I have a difficult thought to end with too. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Matthew 5, 27, people interpret as a sexual doctrine. If you even look upon a woman or man lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It would be better for you to be thrown into hell or sorry, it would be better for you to pluck out your eyes or chop off your hands uh, than to be thrown into hell because of the lustful thoughts that you have. That passage has nothing to do with a sexual doctrine because so we also have to hearken back to Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, where Jesus was tempted in every way, but was without sin. So we, I know we've had this conversation of yeah. Jesus had sexual thoughts. He had uh -huh. feelings. That's the definition of a temptation. You have a thought that creates a feeling and then you decide if you're going to act on that or not. What you're going to do with it. Exactly. So this notion that if we even have a single sexual thought, we're going to be thrown into hell is so ridiculously, it, it, it paints God in a light so punitive that his standard for you is that you have to be even holier quote unquote than jesus 
by not even having sexual thoughts at all. But I don't consider holiness to be based on whether you have a sexual thought. Yes. We are sexual beings. Of course, we're going to have sexual thoughts. Just like we think about eating, think about drinking, just like we think about sleep. We think about what the body is wired to need and to crave. So if it's not a sexual doctrine, Matthew 5, 27 through 29, then what is it? It's a salvation doctrine. The conversation that Jesus was having with his followers at that time was all about the Pharisees' notion that they didn't need this coming Messiah and the blood that he was going to shed for them because they were good enough to get themselves into heaven. So Jesus reached into their life and plucked out the very thing that they could not deny that they do all day, every day. It just is innocent and as natural as breathing. He was just simply saying that your humanity is enough to keep you out of heaven that you're going to need the blood that I shed for you. Yeah. So it is so vital that we understand this passage in the context. Context. It is a salvation doctrine about what it takes to get into heaven, the blood of Jesus. It is not a sexual doctrine in any way, shape, or form. It was just an illustration to prove his point. So coming back to it, and I know that I have other episodes where I dive even deeper into that particular passage, but for the sake of time today, I, I want to move on to this sticky, sticky question. Do you feel like your sticky question needs to go first though? Nope. Nope. Okay. We can end with mine. Okay. So if our sexual energies, if there's nothing sinful about that, and we are guaranteed a place in heaven where we're going to have new bodies and a new earth. And now there's debate on whether that's the same earth redeemed or a different earth. Or yeah. I don't know how it's all going to work. I'm not an expert on Nobody that. does. Nobody does. Nobody knows how that's going to work. <laughs> yeah. But my question to you is if our bodies are not sinful or evil and the sexual feelings and thoughts and energies that our bodies create are not sinful is there going to be sex in heaven because i read in a i I won't say the person's book but i respect this person astronomically as an expert on a wide variety of things but when he said that he did not believe there would be sex in heaven because there won't be marriage in heaven I just had to totally disagree because again, sexuality was created as part of our natural wiring before the fall of man. There's nothing sinful about our sexual nature. It's that we have boundaries and parameters about how best to use a channel and have boundaries around those sexual energies. So I do not believe that there won't be sex in heaven. It just may look different, probably far more satisfying, probably a lot less (laughs) probably no vaginal dryness can i get an amen to that no erectile dysfunction (laughs) no weirdness that freaks us out like it will just be so natural to just do and experience what god designed our bodies to do and experience even before the fall of man so would you based on what you've learned about embodiment theology do you totally disagree with the concept that we don't know there won't be sex in heaven? We don't know that there will, but we don't know that there won't. I am with you, of course. Yeah, embodiment theology does not claim that there will be bodies in heaven. So that's the the 
first question we have to ask, our bodies are raised, even though our bodies are mortal. Paul kind of gets fuzzy about that in 1 Corinthians 15, I think. Um, so you have to decide what you think about that. Um, the, the Bible, guess what? Guess what? The Bible is not clear on the details of the afterlife. What? The Bible's so clear about details on everything. God. Right. Um, and and what I really believe, and some people would say this is a cop-out, is that everything that matters most to us on earth will be reversed in heaven. That um money, sex, power will mean nothing. Yeah, like all those things, and that that my mind is so limited that I can't even imagine what heaven is going to be like, what the afterlife is going to be like. We're going to be in the presence of God in some way we can't understand. Um, and, and yeah, so I don't know. I want to, I want to believe. We will find out someday. We know that for sure. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I also have to quote a guy who approached me after I spoke in Colorado one time. And he said, you want to know why I think there will be sex and marriage and even marriage in heaven that he thinks that people have misinterpreted that particular passage of scripture. He said, because to me, an eternal life without my wife and without making love to my wife isn't heaven. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I don't know how theologically sound that is, but gosh, it's sweet. Like you need to to like, I I just looked at his wife. was like, you need to take that man back to your hotel room right now. Yep, for sure. His idea of heaven. So what's your sticky question, Angie? Well, here's here's the rabbit hole that I can go down with the passage. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. People like to say that that's about sex. And I wonder how those same people feel about caring for their body in other ways. So. The person who smokes or drinks a lot of alcohol or what we know about obesity, gluttonous, gluttonous, people who, people who don't go to the doctor and take care of themselves. What are the other ways that we are not treating our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit? Yet you don't hear sermons on- Put down your cigarettes, limit your alcohol intake, get into a healthy BMI, get off the couch. It's just potluck after church, line up, strap on the feed bag. (laughs) Yep. Yes, absolutely. So why are we not as focused on caring for our bodies in other ways based on that scripture? Right. And I mean, I had lasagna for dinner last night and it was amazing and I'll probably have leftovers tonight. And that's not the healthiest thing for me, but I do what I can to care for my body in all sorts of ways, exercise and, and blood work and other things like that. I don't smoke. I drink maybe a glass. I, I had one pina colada on new year's Eve. That was all. (laughs) And then I was in bed. So much for that wild night. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. So that's, my thought yeah Mm -hmm. so i'm sure that we have just thrown all kinds of challenges uh into your minds thrown wrenches into your gear shifts Um, hope so yeah 
I just go back to every time I say something that I know is going to be controversial, I know that somebody is going to be like, what? I can't believe that Shannon Etheridge thinks that. I just go back to what um, Steve Reed with Waterbrook Multnomah Publishing, I have to give him a shout out for this expression. After I released The Sexually Confident Wife, which was Random House, not Waterbrook, but anyway, I had called Steve and was telling him how difficult it was that people on both sides of the fence, both conservative and liberal, I, I was too conservative for the liberals and too liberal for the conservatives and my philosophies and theologies on sex being holy. And it, it just, yeah, the conservatives were angry that they didn't think that I took it far enough with, you know, rules and guidelines and boundaries and, and what you're, you're okay with oral sex. What you're okay with different positions. What, what, what get over yourselves, get the stick out of your butt. Um, but the liberals were really upset with how dare you say that sex is an act of worship of God. Like there is no such thing as God. And I was like, either extreme is wrong. That you know, the, the balance is always going to be found somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But I was unpacking all this with Steve. He said, Shannon, let me give you some advice. He said, if something that you write or say doesn't ruffle someone's feathers, it wasn't worth writing or saying. And you know what? The the I, authors and the speakers that I respect the most have been the ones who have challenged my paradigms, who have made me tap on the brakes and go, wait a minute, why do I believe what I believe? Yes. And that's the place where God exists. When we say things that cause you to like straighten up your back and go, what? I don't agree with that. Dive in dive into that place and find out what God is saying to you in your discomfort. And, and, and you might end up in the same place. You might end up not agreeing with it. Still, we're not, you don't have to change your mind. That's not always what God is calling us to do, but to ponder these things, to sit with them and figure out what is God saying to you in your discomfort, I think is the work of every person of faith. Absolutely. So it's okay to tap on the brakes. It's okay to press the pause button to get off the merry-go-round, but don't stop there. Really research it because what you really have to look at is what impact has my way of thinking for the past 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, what impact is that having on my sex life, on my marriage, on my self-esteem, on my health? Because I always go back to sex has 250 health benefits. And I don't think that God intended for us to not enjoy those health benefits because sexual thoughts and sexual energy coursing through your body is sinful. It just yeah. doesn't measure up. God is not that cruel. He's not going to create us to be a certain way and then condemn us for being that exact way. It just, it's not indicative of what I know to be true about God's character and nature. Yeah. I'm going to with this thought, Angie, I realize that there may be some people listening who are not Christians and maybe for the exact reason that we've been talking that yeah. maybe raised in church, but because the church served up so much of this purity movement mentality and they just couldn't swallow it, they thought, well, I got to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I'm not going to have anything to do with God. I have talked with so many people who fit that category if that person is listening and got this far into this conversation, 
I just want to say, hey, as you're re-looking at your own sexuality, re-look at your spirituality too, because maybe you did throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yep. Yeah. It'd be a crying yep. I think that the church should be the primary place where we talk about sex and sexuality because that's the start of who designed it, that God designed it. So recapturing how God designed our bodies and for what purpose is something the church should absolutely be talking about and all too often aren't. Yeah. So here we stand not just as representations of God or the church, just because we're Christians or a pastor or a life coach, we stand before you as sexual beings. And mm -hmm. there's no shame in the fact that we have sexual thoughts that produce sexual feelings, that create sexual energy, that we channel into our marriage bed. We just want to boldly invite you to throw off everything that has been hindering you in your sex life and just dive in, just, just dive in, trusting that God is not going to judge you. And he's surely not going to cast you into hell. Like this is not even a salvation issue, whether someone enjoys their sexual energies or not. Yeah. But, mm -mm. yeah there's so much fun to be had. So more fun to be had in diving even deeper into this conversation in our next episode. We're going to keep going until we feel as if we have really plumbed the depths of this topic because we feel as if there needs to be so much healing. Yeah. And so with that, we want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and friends. We love you for listening. Thanks for tapping on us. 